Welcome to the 22nd episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is, what's driving the momentum toward independence and will it continue? A conversation with Cheryl Penny of Dynasty Financial Partners. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. I'm really excited about today's episode. Cheryl Penny, a friend and the founder, president, and CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners, is my guest. His firm is one of the top amongst the growing cottage industry of service providers born to support breakaway advisors. Since launching in 2010, Dynasty has been powering independence for some of the industry's top RIA firms. Sheryl's knowledge of this independent space, specifically what it takes to get from here to there, is exceptional, and his backstory is unique and inspiring. So let's jump right into the conversation. Sheryl, thank you so much for agreeing to join me for this episode. Before we get into some serious content, I was hoping you could share a bit about your background because your route wasn't a conventional one. Thank you, Mindy, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And I just wanted to start by saying congratulations to you for the success and to your team for the success of the podcast. And again, appreciate the opportunity to be here. My background, the non-traditional route started you know, back in, in Maine, uh, raised by my step-grandfather. We had very modest means to say the least. In fact, for a little while we were homeless and lived with various neighbors. But I like to tell a lot of my friends and my partners here at Dynasty now that in a lot of ways it was great training to become an entrepreneur because uh, I think adversity really builds character. It teaches you about stewardship with the limited capital that you have, the importance of commitment to each other, you know, tenacity, never giving up, et cetera. So I certainly wouldn't change anything about my background, and I think it's made me obviously who I am today, and I think a, a better entrepreneur as a result of that. Yeah, it's an awesome story, and thank you for sharing it. So where did the idea for Dynasty come from? What need were you hoping to fill, and do you think you achieved it? Yeah, early on, this is going back probably about 15 years or so in the industry, you started to see more assets and advisors starting to make the move to independence. And some of the founders of the business, myself, were watching the industry closely. And what we realized is there was a need for an integrated platform model that would provide all the various services that an advisor who perhaps wanted to go independent might need to make that transition easier and then provide all of the integrated technology and resources and, and access to capital uh, that they would need once they were independent to grow their business. What we didn't perhaps anticipate that has played out well for us is the need that existed in the already independent RAA environment where a lot of those firms wanted the same thing, which is a partner that could provide a whole host of services and take those things off of their plate, which would give them more time to, to focus on growing their business and taking care of their clients. And so do you think you've achieved that? Because what I'm going to ask you next is, look, Dynasty has become a real household name. And it's hard for me to imagine that too many people have never heard of it. But for those that might be unindoctrinated, tell us a little bit about how it differentiates itself from the competition, who the competition is, and what Dynasty is all about today, how many firms, et cetera. 
Okay, great. Now, there's a lot to that question, but I would start by saying, yeah, I think we've achieved it. It's still uh, in the early stages. And I think if you talk to pretty much any entrepreneur, they'll share with you that, you know, only the paranoid survive and, and you're never content and always trying to drive to get better. But I think we're off to a pretty good start. When I talk about, you know, the platform services that we provide, we really do four things. We have a consulting business that helps and advise, uh, advise an advisor, either going independent, how to run a better business or to plan for succession. The second business is a capital business. So we provide loans to advisors to help grow, to help with M&A or to help with succession. We also buy a revenue interest in firms that we work with. So that's our capital business. We call that Dynasty Capital Strategies. Our third business is helping to run the middle and back office. And we call that core services, but basically taking all of the variable cost components and all of the middle and back office needs off the plate of the advisor to free up more of their time. And then the last business is a platform business. So uh, you hear terms like TAMP, Turnkey Asset Management Provider Services, delivering capabilities around SMAs, UMAs, alternative investments, capital markets, et cetera, all while uh, giving the advisors a community to be in. And I think you find a lot of high-end advisors want to be independent, but not alone. And they want to be in a community where they can share and learn from each other. And I think, again, I, I think it's early stages. We're about eight years in, 45 firms, a little north of $30 billion, uh, in assets on the platform. Uh, we're off to a good start, but where we want to go uh, is to take that number to 120, 150 firms over the next few years, well north of $100 billion of assets under management, which will continue to drive more scale, access, and pricing power that will benefit everyone within our community. And what I know of you, I have no doubt actually that you will get there. And I, we certainly wish you all the best. But go back for a second to the piece about the last part, that there are so many independent-minded advisors that would like to be independent, to break away from employee land and be independent, but worried about being alone. Can you just talk for a minute about the work that Dynasty does in that regard, maybe share an example of two of breakaway teams or deals you've facilitated. Yeah, you know, I, I hate to say that we've seen everything because I'm, I'm sure at this point it's impossible to see everything, but it feels like we've seen just about everything. We've launched uh, advisors from banks and wirehouses and uh, boutique brokerage firms. We've even done breakaways from REAs or roll-ups where advisors have wanted to leave and, and, and launch their own firm. But obviously, the things that are important around a move to independence or confidentiality, uh, making sure that uh, you protect all the uh, the information around the move. The other thing that's important is mapping everything because you want to make sure that you can continue to do the business the way you have been doing or ideally enhance that from a servicing perspective making sure also you map all the product capability, any lending needs, any unique cashiering needs. So a little bit like the art of war, right? The battle is won before the first shot is ever taken. We spend a lot of time in the preparation. We hate surprises. We don't want to surprise you know, our clients who are the advisors. So really working through that preparation to make sure that it goes well. And in some cases, we may spend months and months and in preparation, just to make sure that that launch is obviously a very successful one. Okay. We tell people all the time that what's changed the most in this industry is that there's been a whole cottage industry born to support the breakaway advisor. And I would say that Dynasty is actually probably one of the leading players in that cottage industry. And I think breakaway advisors everywhere acknowledge it as such. 
So it's such an interesting time in the industry for those of us that work in or support the breakaway movement. And we've seen spectacular growth in the past decade, but most especially in the last five. What do you think has really driven that growth, this extraordinary momentum towards independence? I think at a high level, success breeds more success. And as more advisors have made the move to independence and done so in a very successful way, it's encouraging others. But you know, more specifically, I mean, you look at the last five years in our space, the the influence of technology and the advancements in technology that has really helped level the playing field for independent advisors, I think is meaningful, especially when you think about the client experience and the ability to build a firm that services the clients in your vision versus coming out of a, a larger wirehouse where oftentimes the policies and procedures that are put in place obviously have to work you know, for a much larger group of advisors versus being able to customize it for yourself if you're launching an REA. I think the role the custodians have played as they've grown and gotten to scale and have brought more resources and capability into the space have, have played a big part there. Product access over the last, you, know, you said, you know, five years, I think has accelerated. And I can't think of a recent example where any of our advisors on behalf of one of their clients had needed access to uh, any type of product, whether it be alternative investments, a loan capability, a manager, et cetera, where we have not been able to get that for them in the REA space. There's been tremendous influx of capital coming into the space to help advisors get some liquidity around the move to independence. Certainly platform companies like Dynasty have made it easier. I think the economics and the awareness around the economics have also fueled it. Mindy, when you look at advisors being able to make more money once they make the move to independence, also realizing the value creation that occurs when they're independent with owning equity in their business. There's been many, many examples of REA selling for you know significant amounts of money, uh, which I think has given you know even further validity to the wealth creation opportunity with building out the, the equity in the business. Client awareness, I would add that too. I see this myself with my friends who now talk about having a quote unquote independent advisor. I mean, it's just becoming more mainstream where more high net worth clients are starting themselves to understand perhaps the benefits of getting advice separate from where products are manufactured and sold. And and then lastly, I would say for most of the advisors we work with, it's really about what they're running to, not what they're running from. But it seems like some of the the larger you know brokerage firms are continuing to do some things that that add frustration, which on top of everything else that I just discussed has kind of created a bit of a perfect storm for more advisors to take a look at independence. Yeah, I actually agree with everything you said and well said. So, you know, pivoting on that or actually speaking to that, you mentioned the product access and how independence is becoming more mainstream. I was just in a meeting yesterday where a colleague, a fellow recruiter actually said that, you know, independence is interesting, but everybody needs a name brand. So if the choice between going to Dynasty Financial Partners or Morgan Stanley, who wouldn't choose Morgan Stanley? And while you and I know that that's, there's a thousand flaws in that statement, can you respond to what you think the biggest flaw in that statement is? Well, I'd say there's two, and I've spent uh, pretty much my entire career uh, over the last 20 years working with ultra high net worth clients. So I think I have a pretty good feel for the mentality and what it is that they're looking for. 
the reality is the ultra wealthy, you know, the multi-billionaires in this country and around the world, what they have is a family office. And what a family office is, is an independent advisory unit that sits separate from safe custody and separate again from where products are accessed to implement on behalf of the family. So it's what the ultra wealthy have understood for quite some time is the purest model for them to get advice is to have it be triangulated. So to have separate advice uh, from separate custody, from separate products, and then technology from a reporting perspective to tie it all together. What firms like ours and, and larger players in the REA space and the custodians have contributed to is what I would call the democratization of the triangulation of advice. So now if you're a million dollar client or a high net worth client that has advice being delivered to you from an REA, and then you have safe custody at any number of the custodians that provide service within the space, and then you can go to any product manufacturer and get it, you're now getting that same type of triangulated model that historically had only been reserved for the ultra wealthy. The second part of that, when I hear that, is I think a misunderstanding about where the assets sit. And if a client does voice any concern, they're really talking about concern around the custody leg of that triangulated model that I just described. So they're talking about the counterparty brand or name on where their assets would sit. The benefit of being independent and running an REA is you can listen to your client and pretty much any brand that they want to fulfill the custody component, they now have access to. A lot of the larger banks and firms are now creating custody units that can work with RAAs. And so if there are truly a handful of clients that want to sit assets at one of those brands, you can do that while still being covered by an REA and getting access to product and services around the entire industry. Okay. Thank you for that. So do you think that this momentum toward independence will continue? I think yes. Uh, and I think it's a couple things that we're going to continue to drive it and maybe perhaps even accelerate it. We're seeing, I know you see this all the time in, in your business, Mindy, bigger teams. You know, you look at uh, today, you know, the multi-billion dollar teams are considering independence. We're now also seeing groups of advisors and sometimes not even from the same firm, but within a community that are getting together and trying to launch with significant momentum and, and scale. We're seeing proven leaders from our industry and even other industries that are now coming in and taking senior leadership roles within firms that I think are going to contribute to helping those businesses scale faster. As I said earlier, more capital coming into the space. And I also think there are more successful REAs that are now looking to grow inorganically that will become landing pads, if you will, for a lot of advisors who want all the benefits of independence, but maybe they don't want to run their own firm. So those advisors may break away and join a pre-existing firm. And, and I think, again, taken together, those things uh, really have strong potential to not only continue the movement to your question, but perhaps even accelerate it. So do you think then, given that, that the wirehouses will catch on at some point and decide to launch their own independent channel like Wells Fargo has already done or Raymond James have already done? I think the short answer is probably yes, although I would say those firms are not going away. And I think that there are groups of advisors that are more than fine continuing to work at the firms. I have a lot of friends that, that work at those firms. But what, I, what you're starting to see is some of the scaled players 
And you can see this with even some of the already larger REA custodians as well. The firms are evolving to where they have divisions that provide B2C type connectivity or client direct. And you can think about various firms that have that. And now the wirehouses are even providing that direct access to their brand without it going through a traditional brokerage advisor, as well as providing custody services and direct access to REAs. And what will be fascinating, I think, to watch is to the larger advisors that are kind of in the middle, right? Do they look at what's going on around them and say, you know what, I'm large enough. I have a successful business. I'm going to go ahead and make the move to independence and then be covered as an institutional client at one of these firms as a custodian. I think it's going to evolve in a significant way over the next few years, but we're seeing a lot of the scale players look at evolving into those models, even if they're the wirehouses. And in some ways they may end up looking a lot more like what some of the traditional larger REA custodians look like today on a go-forward basis. But do you think that, take UBS, for example, as they continue to lose billion-dollar-plus really high-quality teams to independence, do you think that UBS itself will say to its advisor, we're going to do what Wells Fargo did? We're going to launch a Finet independent broker-dealer-like arm that says advisors that are now part of our private client group can pivot and become part of an independent broker dealer by staying in place? Well, I wouldn't want to speak to any firm specifically, but I would say at a a high level, I think what you'll see is some of these firms, the easiest way to kind of, you know, dip your toe in the water with the REA space and what we should watch for, step one, if you will, is creating product units maybe off the the back of their capital market presence to provide services to REAs. And there's a number of firms that are already doing that. I do think ultimately, yes, if I had to, to venture a guess, Mindy, I think that you will see some of these firms go from maybe that product provider category to more broader custody services. I mean, you look at where rates are going right now, it's obviously very valuable to have larger cash deposits. The appetite for REAs to lend, you know, as more high net worth advisors and high net worth clients come into the space, all of those types of things obviously are very appealing to the banks and wirehouses, as is having more uh, at least perceived direct access to provide broader products and services to them. So I would imagine that they're all looking at those types of options from a strategy perspective, and it will be interesting to see how it all evolves. So what's funny to me is that I've been at this for 20 years in this business. And 10 years ago, when we just began to see a trickle toward independence, the senior leaders at the big firms dismissed any advisor that left to go independent. They dismissed as planned attrition. Oh, he was a loser who couldn't cut it here. We were happy to lose him or, oh, it was only one off. But those leaders, while I'm not privy necessarily to many of those conversations, I think those leaders can't slough it off today when you watch some of the industry's biggest and best head in the same direction. Well, what's undeniable, the lifeblood of our industry are assets, And if you look at the asset migration over the last 10 years, they're only going one way, right? It's a combination of breakaway clients, frankly, as well as breakaway advisors. You have REA custodians now that have more assets just in their REA custody unit than entire wirehouse brokerage platforms have. And you're talking about billions and billions of dollars that are only going one way. That will get magnified even more when we eventually get into a bear market environment as the market pulls back. Because I think 
a lot of the firms that haven't been able to grow organically, some of that has been disguised a bit because we've been in a bull market environment. As the market pulls back and assets continue to flow into the REA space and don't in other parts of the industry, it'll be clear who the longer term winners will continue to be. So you think that even a bear market or generally unfavorable market conditions will work to the advantage of independence? Oh, I definitely do. And look, I think right now there is a bit of complacency and, and good can be the enemy of great, as, as we all know. And sometimes when the market starts to pull back and obviously the advisor's business is tied to you know to the underlying assets uh, and as their revenue pulls back and they understand that they can make more as an independent advisor, that can be a catalyst. The other thing that often happens as revenues are pulling back at the larger firms is they start to cut resources, right? They start to look at, you know, the budgetary impacts of that, which obviously then frustrates even more the advisors, which acts as yet another catalyst to get them to make the move. So I think a pullback in the market would be very good for our business and and for the independent movement. Interesting. So what do you think the next five years holds for the RIA space? Well, I think we're going to continue to see more consolidation. I think you're going to have some very large winners. The most recent stat I saw, there are $687 billion plus REAs, which is less than 4% of total REAs controlling north of 60% of all assets in the space. So I think we're going to continue to see in some ways kind of the, the rich getting richer as those firms have access to more resources, capital, and they're growing not just organically, but inorganically as well. I think the result of that is you're going to have some super regionals and ultimately some large scale national REA brands. And a lot of REAs out there, frankly, are going to have to think about, you know, how do I compete? against these larger scaled REAs who have my fiduciary independent story, but they also have a lot of capital for technology and resources behind them. And as I said earlier, I think those firms are going to be big winners, not just buying REAs, but there's a lot of breakaway advisors, I think, ultimately, that that are going to join firms that, that look a lot like that. So I'm very, very bullish, obviously biased when I say that, because you know we're supporting a lot of those firms that we hope are the large scale winners. But I'm very bullish on the REA space, but I'm particularly bullish on the larger, very well-run, well-capitalized firms, because I think they're in a position to win on a significantly disproportionate basis. Interesting. So let me pivot for a second. From where I sit, it used to be that inertia was the biggest reason why an advisor didn't make a move. And what I'm talking about is an advisor who was a captive employee at a brokerage firm who had toyed with the idea of moving and in the end decided to stay put because it just felt too overwhelming to do so. Today, I think it's much more about fear. And fear comes from having some misperceptions or some misunderstandings about what's changed in this space. So how would you respond to that? Do you agree with that? See it the same way? I do agree with it. And I think in some ways that maybe is is a form of, of inertia. And I think about you know some of the changes recently with broker protocol and talking to advisors that are at firms that, that have been impacted. I think initially maybe a little bit fearful, but now, you know, having been educated, certainly less so because 
how quickly we forget that only a handful of years ago, we lived in an industry where advisors moved all the time and there was no protocol, right? So we're getting back to that now. And, and I think that will certainly be the case with advisors where the economic benefit to them is so undeniably positive. They'll continue to make the move to independence without fear around protocol. The other thing I would say around that issue and I study leadership in a lot of different industries, you know, leadership by fear, it's not sustainable for any period of time. And I think it has the potential of backfiring on firms that are constantly focused on playing defense versus playing offense and delivering and building capability sets that are better for, for their advisors and their clients. But I think the other part of this worth mentioning is education. And I get it and appreciate that advisors have full-time jobs, you know, taking care of their clients. So it takes time to learn the language of independence, right? And we spend a lot of time in what we do is being translators, right? You know, we speak the wirehouse language, but we also speak the RA language. And it takes time for people to understand those nuances. And and what I would suggest to somebody who who's thinking about making the move is just to give himself a good amount of time you know, speak to someone like yourself who's very knowledgeable in the space that can help point them in the right direction and and go at their own pace and speak to their peers who've done it successfully. Because once they get through the education and start to learn more of the language, I find that a lot of the fear or perception of fear starts to go away. There are three or four repeated objections we hear. So I'm going to ask you to address them. One of them you talked about already. I'd love to go independent, but I work with ultra high net worth clients and they're loyal to a name brand. But the next one is, I'd love to go independent, but my clients are primarily international in focus and I rely on a big firm to support them. True or false? Well, false in that we have a lot of large scale REAs that we work with that have a tremendous piece of their business in international. And the reality is uh, a lot of the larger custodians uh, in the space have significant experience and expertise in the international arena. Even if the advisor is a hybrid and they're continuing to do a fair amount of brokerage business uh, with some international clients, there are a lot of independent broker dealers, just like we have, uh, we talk about friendly broker dealers that can help facilitate the commissional business for domestic clients. We also have uh, independent broker dealers that, that are also out there and available uh, to advisors who want to cover international clients. So we have the technology, the reporting uh, capability, the custody capability, the product access, and in both the advisory and brokerage capacity. So if I'm a, a, an independent focused advisor that's considering the move to independence, I would say that whereas 10 years ago, maybe the, the ecosystem or the platform functionality may not have been there, but it's not just level today. I think it's tilted in the favor and advantage of an independent advisor servicing international clients. Okay. How about, I'd love to go independent, but my clients are institutions and independence seems great for a private client book, but not mine. Is that a valid statement? Well, when you say institutions it could be either endowments or foundations and you were, they're acting as kind of institutional consultants to them. Those firms typically, and I hear that from time to time with advisors we talk to, the reality is when you ask them, who do you most compete with? You know, they talk about firms like Callan 
and associates that, that are out there in the space. Well, Cowan, as an example, is a partner of ours. So we have access to the institutional research of a firm like Cowan. And firms like ours have significant investment teams that sit behind the advisors to help them go win that business. I can't think of any recent examples where we've had you know, large RFP competitive situations where our advisors weren't actually enhanced in their story that they were able to tell us a fiduciary by being independent. If by institutional, perhaps you have listeners that are thinking about stock plans or corporate services uh, type capability, then obviously what they would know is a lot of the larger REA custodians are also significant players in that space as some of the larger administrators. And we're seeing more and more advisors that are in that business look at going independent, doing all the reinvestment capability for the executives as a fiduciary, as an independent, and then partnering with those REA custodians to do more of the administrative services. And I think that's something that you're going to continue to see more of going forward. Yeah, that's amazing. And the last myth, I'd love to go independent, but I need access to my firm's investment bank to facilitate deals. And oh, by the way, I get paid a significant referral fee from them. Valid or not valid? Not valid. And this is you know, an area that, that obviously we do a lot of work in. The reality is the product access is far broader now in the independent arena. So whether you're talking about capital markets, the ability to shop a transaction across multiple banks on behalf of a client and force a competitive process, whether you're talking about access to investment banking, either in the middle market or bulge bracket arena, there are many, many high quality investment banks that want to compete for an opportunity to service a client of an REA and that will pay for that referral. We have a whole network of investment banks that we work with that provide that type of referral. Typically, it's up to about 20% as well, uh, Mindy. So the, the end payout, if you will, that an advisor would get as an independent is significantly higher than they would in the wirehouse. Whether you look at alternatives, uh, alternative investment capability, SMAs, et cetera, insurance uh, is something we're asked a lot about as well. We find on average that an advisor who has uh, a large focus on the uh, insurance business and his insurance license ends up making about three times more on that business as an independent than they do in the wirehouse. And if I could add one more myth, just because I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a meeting Please. where uh, it's funny, the advisor uh, was saying to me, I would love to go independent, but I'd like a little bit of liquidity around the move mm. uh, and their understanding was that there just isn't you know, liquidity available, whereas they have to take a deal maybe from another wirehouse to get liquidity. And that's a definite myth that I would highlight as well, because there are firms now, whether it's you know some private equity firms that are in the space that would buy a piece of advisor's business, whether it's a platform company uh, like Dynasty that provide loans to advisors, you know, or will buy a small piece of the revenue, or banks that have now become very familiar with the REA space that will provide liquidity to advisors in transition. I think it's important for people to understand that that's absolutely a myth now that you can get liquidity around a move if that's important to you. Yes. And that actually was going to be my next question. So thank you for highlighting it. I agree <laughs> with that. And there are many types of capital available to a prospective breakaway. And it comes down to an education process to figure out whether you should take a loan, sell equity, or a combination thereof. Okay. So here, my next question is my favorite. 
We've seen some really significant teams go independent in the recent past. Frank Gulley in San Francisco, ex-Goldman Sachs with about $8 billion in assets, Six Meridian, which was an ex-Morgan team in Wichita, Kansas with about $2 billion. Most recently, Ben Sachs and Eric Bodner, an ex-Merrill Lynch team in New York with about $4.1 billion who chose not to leverage a service provider like Dynasty and not suggesting that they looked at Dynasty and decided against them, but rather decided that they wanted to DIY, do it yourself, partnering with a custodian to build their own firm. I would have to assume that cost is a factor in that decision, but what else do you think comes into play when an advisor goes independent but chooses to be a do-it-yourselfer? Yeah, sure. And and uh, those are some great examples. I, I would say I, I'm not familiar with any of them, so I can't speak to any of them specifically. And to my knowledge, we didn't meet with them. But I don't know about the, the cost piece. And we put out a, a research report recently that I do think is worth mentioning in that if you do it yourself, and there are uh, some people obviously who like to do that, uh, the result of that is hiring more people. I think, you know, when people talk about cost, Mindy, they oftentimes will look at what's the cost of the technology, you know, and some of the infrastructure. And we can buy things, obviously, at larger scale and some of that's cheaper, but we have to get paid for the services that we provide. I think the biggest delta that we see with a lot of REAs that come to us looking at their P&L before they work with an outsourcer like ours is they tend to be very heavy on staff. And the result of that is they're not actually making any more money. That being said, what I think we see when somebody wants to do it themselves is they have an element of just being a rugged individualist. Talking to somebody recently who said, look, I'm the person that when I have free time on the weekend, you know, I'm going to Home Depot, right? And I'm doing my stuff around the house on my own versus outsourcing it or hiring somebody to come do it. That's all well and great. And typically what we're seeing when we talk to some large players that uh, larger advisors that might make the move. Uh, they tend to be more uh, APMers, advisor as portfolio manager, which then you know, in and of itself, what they're saying is, look, we don't want to outsource to a money manager. We're going to run the portfolios for our clients. Maybe you know, the infrastructure they need is very simple. Just give us a trading system into a custodian with some basic you know, marketing compliance support and off we go. And they don't need, you know, broader community or broader platform. We've seen some examples that, that look like that. But we're really, you know, for the firm that, that says we want a partner, we want a growth partner or a transition partner. Maybe we need some capital and we want more of a turnkey solution to free up our time to help us take care of our clients and go get new ones. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And I would be one of those, by the way. I am definitely not a rugged individualist. So I hear you. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Last question. There's been a lot of news recently about the Focus Financial IPO. What message do you think that sends the industry? And how do you think that ties into a seller's market? Meaning if you build it, are there buyers for it? Well, for, first, I would say it's, it absolutely is a seller's market right now. The market, whether you're an REA or you know, service provider to REAs, the whole ecosystem has been red hot and there's capital coming in from frankly all over the world in different pockets to the space and and I expect that to continue to the focus IPO I think it's great I think it's really good for the space certainly good for some of the the early stage investors that that were there 
uh, and I'm happy for for everyone that's involved there. I think it's it's great in raising more awareness, you know, around the IPO. And and my guess, and certainly my hope, is that it inspires others that are you know quickly achieving uh, that same level of scale where perhaps it makes sense to go public as well, which will continue to fuel you know more buzz around the space, which will encourage uh, more participants. Yeah. Okay. Shul, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest today. I think that your insights have been invaluable and I expect a lot of people will find them so, and I'm grateful. Thank you so much for having me. I think you'll agree that Cheryl painted a compelling picture about what's driving the momentum toward independence. He says a level playing field with respect to technology, the ability to build a customized client-centric firm, the expanded role of the custodians, the acceleration of product access, the influx of capital, and the unprecedented value creation opportunity has generated the perfect storm. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with Bill Loftus, founding partner of $2.8 billion Coastal Bridge Advisors, one of the first breakaway teams to join Focus Financial Partners, and with Mark DuPont, Senior Vice President of Independence and Operations at Focus. No doubt you've heard a lot about Focus in the news recently, their successful IPO, a standout that added further credibility to the independent space. Mark will have plenty to share about Focus Financial, their recent growth and plans for the future, while Bill will give us a firsthand viewpoint of being independent for a decade now and how that's impacted the extraordinary success of his firm. The episode has all the ingredients of what I'm sure will be compelling conversation, so I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please know that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening. And also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.